Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Namaste, yogis. This is Andrew Seeley here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. And today, I have an absolutely empowering interview for you. Be prepared to be completely captivated by the remarkable story of booty yoga founder, Busy Gold. Her sincere passion for women's empowerment has led her to uplift a community of women through true sisterhood. Get ready to drop into this intense story of loss and pain, upliftment and gain as Busy Gold reveals her journey to and through yoga. You know, my parents were all about like me having the Ivy League education and I'm blessed that I have the intellect and academic prowess that I have and I feel like now I'm at a point where I'm finding a way to use that to my advantage to communicate these more esoteric topics to people that desperately need them. I'm proud to be a Pablo Picasso in a world where yoga teachers only draw in straight lines. Everyone thought that he was completely crazy, like that's what you saw looking at this and it was an abstraction, but I'm really glad to be able to see the abstraction of movement and where we need to go in the future every single time I teach. Drop into the freedom of knowing your heart. Find courage on this path as Busy shares her truest art, booty yoga, on this insightful episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast with Busy Gold. And make sure to tune in to the end of this episode for a special offer for our Yoga Revealed family from Busy Gold herself. Namaste, yogis. It brings me great joy to be sitting across from the absolutely critically acclaimed number one super amazing woman here, the booty yoga creator and founder, Busy Gold. She's just as beautiful in person as you've seen her in those pages of awesome magazines. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because I'd say the, the first article that I read about you was in the LA Yoga magazine, and it immediately, like, like I was, I made a connection between who you were and who all of my friends have like told me about. Because 
as you know, I'm good friends with Aubrey Marie and good friends with um, Rachel as well, who's an amazing booty yoga teacher in Hawaii. Yeah. And um, yeah, and my good friend Robin, who loves your classes in Hawaii. Um, and I just like, I was like, goodness, I gotta meet this girl. So I'm really stoked to be sitting here with you and starting this interview. Me too. It's my first vacation in about five years, so I'm glad that you got me in this vibration. Typically, I'm in the middle of running a corporation, which is never something that I intended to do, so it gets me into a different frequency than I am right now, so I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you in this vibration where I'm definitely relaxed, and you just gave me an amazing acro yoga therapeutic massage, and I'm feeling blissed out awesome totally yeah when i came in you know to the mondrian here and i was like you told me you're on your vacation i was like it's only right that i give you a therapeutic flow because if i'm interrupting you during your vacation i might as well hook you up with a great interview and bro hooked it up so good (laughs) i'm on cloud nine right now i only hope that i can be as articulate as i typically am because i feel like as we were just talking about, I feel like I'm on drugs. <laughs> the good kind. The kind that help you see your other realms. So that's how I'm feeling right now. So thank you. That was awesome. Definitely. Yeah, well, I really want to start out with your path because I feel like just in talking to you for like the last hour, I've learned so much about what's going on with your life right now. But I want to learn about how yoga was first revealed to you. So it's interesting. I was on a path to become an Olympic athlete. I was really into skiing. Everything was extremely masculine. And I mean, for my ninth birthday, my dad, his birthday present to me was to build me a gym. Like, surprise, you get to lift weights now. Like, yay, awesome. Um, So I remember at that age, definitely going from dinner down to like watch my dad on the Stairmaster. And I was definitely encouraged to go lift weights or run on the Stairmaster, do something that was, to me, in my perception, very masculine. And it was all with the end result of eventually getting to the Olympics. So I had pursued that path for a long time, and it wasn't until I was 19 and had gotten to a place in my career where I was, you know, really excelling and my tricks were different than everybody else was doing at the time and was doing really well. And I had one particular day where I was practicing on the air hill so when we do aerials you practice on an air hill so the the decline is almost vertical so that when you land no matter what you do it's a little bit softer on the joints Mm -hmm. so i've been training winter park had been training the same sequence over and over again and landed on one that i would deem not perfect which now as you'll get to know me i'm not at all somebody that strives for perfection because that was the person that i used to be so at the time i was somebody that strived for perfection and looked at my coaches and just said you know i just want to end on a good one and they said busy you're tired that was great you're already going to beat everybody there's no need to push any further go home get in the hot tub it's gonna be fine i was like i'm just gonna do one more i just wanted on one good one So, of course, it was that one good one that led me to exactly where I am now, which is clearly not the Olympics. (laughs) If you're listening now, I never went to the Olympics. That goal failed, but that's okay. I achieved many other things. Um, So I went up to the Air Hill, tried to do my last one, and because I'd been a gymnast previously, I had really good air sense, and I landed one that I shouldn't have landed and it ended up tearing both my right and left ACL and my right meniscus. Oh my goodness. 
And I remember skiing out of it thinking, wow, what is this feeling? It feels really weird. It's hard to balance. And then went home to my the house where my whole ski team was in Colorado and um, did the stupidest thing ever, which <laughs> I got in the hot tub. Like, don't do that. If you ever have an injury, don't get in the hot tub. Stupid, stupid. But again, I was 19. I didn't know any better. Now I know better. I'm 31. So I got in the hot tub, and by the time I got out, my legs were frozen, extended, and the swelling was more than I could have ever imagined. And I couldn't even drive myself home to Boulder, where I was going to college. I'd have my boyfriend come pick me up. And aside from my pride that was terribly damaged, um, my dreams and everything that I had formulated about my future was then kind of crashing in. And... I also had, previous to that, had a surgery on a tumor that was in my head when I was 16, 15 actually, like 15, almost 16th birthday. And I vowed to myself after that horrendous experience that I was never going to have surgery again. So when my doctors looked at me and they were like, well, it's going to take surgery to repair this. I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to find something else (laughs) because this body is not undergoing surgery. Hell no, it's not happening. So when I did my research, the only thing that really came up was, what do you think? Yoga. Yoga. (laughs) So they prescribed yoga. Not they. I went looking for something that would help me heal my injury without surgery. And the only thing that I could come up with was yoga. So I reluctantly went to my first yoga class. I was in Boulder and I went to a studio that I don't believe is still in existence called Om Time. It was amazing. It was Anusara Studio. And I always, whenever I give interviews, I always call out to this teacher like, Misty, if you're out there, holler at a girl. You are why I am where I am. Wow. Um, You've never seen Misty I don't know her last name. No, but she changed my life forever. I went to this class and as I mentioned, I had previously been a gymnast. I was a dancer. So in terms of body awareness, to me, yoga was nothing out of the ordinary. I was very used to and accustomed to listening to cues and applying them to my body alignment. So it's no surprise that she assumed I'd been a yogi for a long time and it was my very first class. So I listened to everything that she said. I was fully immersed, giving it my all. And for me, in the back of my mind, it was always in hopes of healing my knees so that I could go back to skiing, not so that I could be who I happen to be today, ever. So I went through that class and at the end she put us into Shavasana and we were in a supine pose. I believe we were in Supta Baddha Konasana. There was a blanket underneath our sacrum and she led us through a long guided meditation, at which point I went really deep. So deep that I started to panic because I felt like I was trapped in my own head. And she could see that I was panicking even though my eyes were closed because I kept in my head, the way my perception saw it is that I was stuck in a maze and I couldn't find the proper exit to open my eyes. So I kept trying to open my eyes because she was saying like, everybody roll over onto your right side. And I could hear her, but I couldn't quite navigate my way out of this maze. And she could see or sense that I was having this anxiety and came over and grabbed both my hands she was like just follow my voice follow my voice it's really wonderful that you went so deep just keep following my voice and I eventually came out of it and she kind of rubbed my back and she whispered in my ear I just have a feeling you're gonna be a really amazing yogi someday I see you being like an amazing yoga teacher and just kind of like patted me on the sacrum and I was like "Hmm," little baby I was like okay (laughs) and then at the end of class she came and sought me out and said you know 
you're really exceptional. Have you ever thought about becoming a yoga teacher? And I was like, well, this is my first class. And she was like, your first class at the studio? And I was like, no, (laughs) legitimate first class ever. And she couldn't believe it. And I don't think that's because I'm an exceptional person. I think it's because my whole life I had been conditioned to listen to verbal cues and have to apply them to my body alignment right away. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that there was anything special about me. I was just really good at applying verbal cueing and applying it to my body. So at that point, I went home, I remember very clearly to my boyfriend, Zach, at the time and was like, I think I might be a yoga teacher. And he was like, okay, great. At the time, I was dating this guy, Zach, who was a Anusara yogi, and I would watch him gracefully float in and out of poses and do all these crazy things that to me just looked magical but could never imagine myself doing them and didn't really have a desire to I think at that point compete with him I wanted that to be his thing and then when I got home and I was like look what I learned how to do and I remember to this day I learned how to do Ostra Kravasana on my first day because she didn't know that it was my first <laughs> class and I went to an advanced class because I was kind of a I was an overachiever but I think also I just I've never perceived the typical physical limitations. So to me, I was like, oh, I mean, I've never taken yoga before, but like level two, three, sure, that sounds great. You're like, you know, at 19, I'm, I'm throwing double misties and yeah. stuff. Yeah, you know? I'm like, I can do a backflip <laughs> off of my bed and I'm fine. <laughs> So I ended up getting into these crazy arm balancing poses. So of course I went home and not in a way that was like showing off, but more showing my boyfriend, oh my God, I found this new passion. Look at all this cool sh- stuff I can do. I'm sorry, I'm trying so hard to edit myself. And he grabbed me and gave me a hug and he was like, I don't know why, but I just have this feeling that you're going to be a famous yogi one day. And at the time I was thinking to myself, like, that just seems like such a far reach considering I just started practicing yoga. My whole life to this point has been about skiing. And I never really even thought about anything academic. I knew that I came from a lineage of very intelligent people and that high achieving academics was expected of me, but I'd always kind of like put it on the back burner to pursue my ski career. So when this injury happened, I was faced with two very specific things. One, this alternative path to healing, which led me to yoga. And then two, what the heck am I going to do now that skiing is not my end goal, right? Now all of a sudden I have to think about what academic achievements I'm going to focus my energies on. Because before that, I mean, I don't even really thought that I'd given much attention to what major I had chosen because it didn't really matter. It was all secondary. So now all of a sudden academics and this you know, far out life goal, we're all becoming very real because before that, all I could really see was the Olympics as the life goal. So I went through a phase of a lot of adjustment and I would say that my yoga practice really helped me stay grounded in that. And between the ages of nine and 20, about 20. So when I was 19, I found yoga and then about 20 was when I really got deep in my yoga practice, like consistently five to six days a week, sometimes seven what inspired that that depth? What inspired that transition from kind of going once in a while to actually seven days a week? So I think for me, it was this, what I was talking about from nine to about 20, I had panic attacks all day long, every day, completely debilitating to the point where any decision that I was looking at to make in my life, I would think like, well, how close would I be to a hospital in case I had a panic attack or like, would I have to do this? What what was the anxiety coming from? What did it Um, stem from? I mean, it's something that I don't necessarily want to get too deep into, but um, the anxiety started when I was nine. It definitely was wrapped up in a, a relationship that I had with my dad that was not, how do I say it? 
it was not the way a parent-child relationship should have been. I'm not saying that my dad was like sexually abusive or anything like that, but there were definitely lines crossed energetically where I was essentially thrust into the role of a wife instead of a daughter that caused me a lot of anxiety in my day-to-day communication with my dad. My parents were divorced and there was just a lot of responsibility put on me at an early age to comprehend topics that were definitely not age appropriate which as I look back now I have a daughter that's six and I think about you know when I talk to her does she understand what I'm talking about what types of frames of reference do I have to give her to understand what I'm talking about and is it truly age appropriate like does she need to know the things that I'm talking about right now so I think there was just a lot of anxiety put on me there and responsibility that I think I don't think my dad necessarily wanted to put that burden on me. I don't think he did it actively, but when he and my mom separated, I was just kind of the one sitting there holding all the baggage. And I love my dad and we have a strained, but you know, good ish relationship. It's getting better and better, but it definitely put a lot of, um, a lot of weight on my shoulders that I don't even think until very recently he's realized. And the way that, he and the rest of my surrounding family members chose to deal with my anxiety was like what are you crazy like just breathe just breathe and for anybody that's ever had a panic attack I mean you know the most annoying thing to ever hear is a just breathe or it's all in your head Mm -hmm. so what I dedicate my life to right now is helping people conquer anxiety using what I call the break method and it's worked so amazingly well for me and now thousands of clients that I've worked with and it it is in effect simple but it's not simple in a way that is patronizing which is what my parents always try to do like just breathe it's all in your head true objectively yes it is all in your head but that doesn't mean that you're in control of the mechanism that's spewing out the neurotransmitters that are causing the problem so i've dedicated a lot of my practice and who i am to dealing with that very subject because i have risen out of that and no longer have panic attacks when i used to think of my future everything was built around what my panic attacks would allow me to do and to not do mm-hmm. and to even think about my life in terms of that now would just make me so sad so when i think about clients that i deal with on a daily basis that look at their life framed in that type of setting i just want to reach out to those people and say it doesn't have to be like this it's more simple than you know and it takes somebody that isn't going to patronize you but to also be harshly honest and real with you and hold you accountable to learning the tools and applying them on a day-to-day basis because you can get to the other side and you can find freedom and although i will say in that freedom that i've found in my life there are those people that really love to feel emotions you know mm-hmm. you know the people that are just kind of like emotion, emotional i call them emotional junkies, junkies you know they just <laughs> they love to feel everything my mom was one of them and to those people when they see you operating out of you know a lot of what i teach is to interrupt the emotional response with logic and then to balance that with intuition to make a really well-informed decision that i believe you know we don't need to get too esoteric here but if people were to believe in other entities or beings that existed, I believe that they operate less out of the heart, honestly, and more out of the head. So I think one of our culture and society's biggest problems is that we operate so much from the heart. And the heart is our battery and it's so important, but our heart shouldn't be what makes all the decisions, right? There needs to be a communication between the heart and the head to make a decision that is 
more infused with logic and intuition than just sheer emotion, right? Our emotion is what leads that emotional response, which to me, no offense since you're a guy, I actually, in my dealings with clients, I think men tend to react actually out of emotion more than women, which is interesting because we're socially conditioned that women are quote unquote so emotional. But typically what people are saying when they're saying women are so emotional is that they're so intuitive because Mm -hmm. emotion is something that happens when you have a direct stimuli and then an immediate response. There's not a, there's not a, a thought out plan that involves subtle cues, body language, forward thinking. None of that is involved in emotional response. The only thing that's involved in emotional response is you do this. I react immediately. It's a very short timeline. Intuitive responses innately look further ahead to if I choose to react this way and I play it out in my head, you're probably going to do this. And then because of the way your shoulders just lifted, it means that you're thinking this. So maybe I might not make that decision. Mm -hmm. That's not emotional. That's intuitive. You're thinking like five steps ahead (laughs) using subtle body cues. That is not emotional. So one of the things that I do with women is really try to kind of deprogram that socialization that women are so emotional because they're really not. Women are very intuitive and men tend to be more emotional than women. And where I feel the balance is, is in getting that emotional response, interrupting it by coming up to logic, which is neither male nor female. It's the closest thing we can get to objective reality and running through a series of logical questions that helps you make a more informed decision about how to respond. And I will say that there have been times in my life that because I've been able to do that since being completely debilitated by anxiety attacks, people are like, I mean, I kid you not, I just edited myself. (laughs) I've had students write me letters saying, I don't know if you are a robot, an alien, or should be the leader of the free world, but whatever you're doing is magical. So if you look at just those sheer words, It's the whole gamut of it's unknown. I don't see anybody else do it. And it works so well that maybe you should be the president, which frankly, this can be the time that I announce that I will run for president. I will run for president in the next 10 years. It's going to happen. I've already, I've already thought out my whole campaign platform. You need to go hang out with Sean Korn because she's one of my really amazing friends. I would absolutely love to. Yes. You guys need to meet each other. We are the kind of, and I don't see this in an ego driven way. This is why we were brought here. We're the ones that are supposed to be the leaders. Like, thanks, Trump and Hillary, but no thanks. Like, (laughs) voting for, like, worse and worse? I don't even know what to say about that. But I would love to meet Sean Korn. The whole reason that many of us are here, because we're... And I I mean, I I always... It's funny, and I'm glad that we're having this podcast now, because my whole life I've found this dichotomy of like I'm this very intellectual Jewish girl from New York that's very real and relatable and has kind of a raunchy sense of humor but at the same time I'm also a past life regression therapist that deals with hypnotherapy and you know I've been a channel since I was 19 years old and all these things kind of came crashing onto me so when to me when I talk about star people I'm saying it in like the most New York Jew real world down-to-earth way I could possibly say like (laughs) star people are here to save you (laughs) that's not in a way that's here to to, you know, make you question your religion or anything like that. I, I don't ever want to make people feel like they have to question themselves in a way that makes them feel guilt or shame. You know, to me, it's all about opening up your perception. And this is what I think is the best test. And I've been thinking about it all day. So I want to give it to you. Give okay? it to me. Okay. So get into your visualization. Close your eyes. Okay. So if you were to see a gumball machine, 
and you saw lots of blue and red gumballs. Mm-hmm. And I said, what color gumball do you want? What would you say? Definitely red. Okay. So what's interesting is just because I said all you could see was red and blue gumballs, there was part of you that decided that there were no other color gumballs underneath it, correct? <laughs> True. So for most people, what if I told you there was a purple gumball right underneath it? Would you have chosen purple? Oh, yeah. Purple's my favorite Fuck color. yeah. Excuse know? me. Beep. <laughs> The crown chakra mother beep. <laughs> I'll edit myself. Do you, so, know, do you know what happened actually? When you said um, there's a gumball machine and there's lots of gumballs, as soon as you said there's lots of gumballs, there was more than one machine. And ooh. when you said that there was blue and red gumballs, the machine that was directly in front of me had blue and red gumballs and the other machines had multicolored gumballs. Ooh. Still. So see, even my verbal cueing narrowed the gumballs that you were able to see. And this shows a really great example of what socialization does to humans, right? We only, we're told what the horizon line dictates shows the, the possibilities that we can even see. If we are told that the world is flat, until we do our own research, we're going to just assume that the world is flat. We only know what we know. So... In my research and everything that I've done with people, I've always helped them push that horizon line out a little bit further, a little bit further. So it's not to say that if you're Christian, I, for whatever reason, my karma, even though I'm like, you know, I would say a very open Jew from New York, for whatever reason, my karma is to get like as many hardcore Republican Christians as possible. And I accept that karma with an open heart. Thank you, Jesus. I love you too. Thank you for bringing me all of your followers. Um, I will say that my goal is really to show those people without making them question their own beliefs, show them how far they can push those beliefs from what I would consider a passive belief system to an active belief system. So how far out can you push that horizon line to then see what other possibilities might be out there? If I told you that there were only blue and red gumballs, that's all you see. But you know, I didn't even actually say that's all there were. I just said, all you can see is red and blue. So you didn't choose purple because you couldn't see it. But now that I'm telling you there's purple, of course you'd choose purple. If there were like green and turquoise and aquamarine, there might be all these other colors that you might choose, but because all you can see is red and blue, that's what you think your options are limited to. So what I try to show people is without making them feel guilt or shame for what they currently believe, how they can take those belief systems and extend them out, give them a 3.0 upgrade so they can see that there's all these different colors and variations to what their current belief system is that can help them expand and grow in a way that's more transformative than what they're currently doing today. That's beautiful. So this was kind of the segue from you speaking specifically on how your practice changed from a one-off time of yoga to an everyday practice. So can you bring me back to when you started like really dedicating yourself to yoga? Absolutely. And I will say that even as we're talking about the story, all I can think is there are so many people that have asked me this story over the past five years that this is going to be a really highly listened to podcast because I've never told this story. So I'm glad that I've, I'm getting to do it with you. So 
I, at the time, I told you I was on track to, and this might have been not on the podcast, but when I finally did choose that academic path that I'd been kind of avoiding using skiing as a excuse, I chose public relations and advertising. I am definitely intelligent and driven, so whatever I chose, no matter what, was going to be successful for me because I don't, I don't ever half-ass anything. I do everything with my whole ass. <laughs> and that's why it's called booty, right? <laughs> Actually, no, but that's so funny. Uh, I'm just kidding because I, I think a lot of people don't know that it's B-U-T-I. It actually is an Indian Marathi word that means the cure to something that's hidden or kept secret. And booty is actually a word that was used to come after the word jati, which meant of the earth. Mm-hmm. So jati booty is what they use to refer to Ayurvedic herbs. And the reason I chose that is because my entire practice, and I hesitate to even say my, I really, and as we'll get more into this, I view myself as the caretaker of the practice, not the founder. And every time people are like, the creator, the founder, I really view myself more as like a chaperone. Like, I'm just making sure people are keeping their shit spiritually aligned and like doing the program justice, because I view myself more as an antenna that was listening to the practice and was able to caretake it. And I will say that you know, thank God for the universe because the amount of adversity that we've come against, especially in the yoga community for what we do is unbelievable and quite shocking, frankly. And I would say that one of the best decisions that the universe made was to choose me because I don't back down from anybody (laughs) and I'm really intelligent. So if you want to talk to me about yamas and niyamas, go ahead. You want to talk to me about kriyas, go ahead. You want to talk to me about the chakra system, go ahead. You can have any argument you want with me. And I've had this argument with many very, very dedicated, well-educated yogis. And they always come out of it saying, oh my God, (laughs) My eyes are opened. So I get that on a purely visual level, how people could be drawing conclusions. But as a yogi, you should know better. Mm -hmm. Yoga is a practice that evolves with human nature. It is a practice of movement and pranayama and how to, you know, choose to react to other people, how to take care of yourself, how to study, how to align yourself for spiritual enlightenment. It's not just a practice of asana. And asanas, they started with like five or six asanas and now we have so many. So one of the things that I I love about the practice that we've created is that I feel like so many yogis these days are so hell-bent on sticking to tradition, which makes no sense because a lot of the tradition, quote-unquote, that they're hanging to is still evolutionary compared to what it used to be. So you're hanging on to somebody else's evolution. So 50 years from now, mark my words, mine is going to be the traditional, okay? (laughs) So just listen to me. All of you are making no sense. Yoga is a practice that is supposed to evolve with the human need. Mm -hmm. So 6,000 years ago or more, when yoga was created, people were like raking the ground, hoeing the ground, working out in the fields. They weren't attached to their iPhone. They weren't working corporate jobs. The needs of humans have evolved. Just like women are now practicing yoga 70% more than men. That was not the case 6,000 years ago. Women weren't allowed to practice yoga. So tell me again that the poses that were right for people that worked agricultural jobs that were men 6,000 years ago are right for today. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. You've got to be able to evolve that practice, stay true to tradition, understand why, how that applies to the body, how that applies to the chakra system, how that applies to energy. But then a 
allow it to evolve to fit where humans are today. That's the only way we are going to evolve as a society. So to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because it's not traditional, if you take a step back and objectively look at what you just said, do you want to shackle humans to 6,000-year-old asanas? If you do, you're not really helping human evolution, are you? Mm-hmm. It really upsets me. And I completely agree with you in the sense that we are in our nature evolving. Therefore, our yoga as well needs to evolve. Absolutely. And that's why I decided to start this podcast because it's beautiful to actually take forth the documentation of all the different types of yoga that are serving the different types of people that are today. Because like you said, we're not farmers anymore. We have so many different positions. Shona. Not only, not only Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> God even knows what's next. I can't even keep up. Yeah. And so I, I really, I, I'm so fond of just like the way that you really dig deep into these beautiful, what I would call like elaborations of all of the questions that I ask. <laughs> I don't know another way to communicate. But I will say that one of the quotes that I had on one of my Instagrams after getting a lot of flack from people in my community, which to me, you know, the yoga community that I feel like I was raised in from that age of 19 in the Anusara community, I think at the time I felt like they were really open and accepting. But then if I look back, like if I were to transplant myself there now, they'd probably not be very accepting of me at all because it went against, you know, whatever their teachings were or their alignment principles or what have you. And I feel like I do try to stay really strictly to alignment principles and then evolve from that traditional alignment and then add what I call spiral structure technique, which is helping the body activate muscles along the spiral instead of in more linear movements, which I feel like mostly for women is exceptionally beneficial, but for all humans, it's unbelievable unbelievable unbelievably beneficial um for activating the chakra system cleansing the endocrine system helping your hormone balancing and for me when i look at it one of the things that i wrote in my instagram was i'm proud to be a pablo picasso in a world where yoga teachers only draw on straight lines Mm -hmm. like when pablo picasso first started to paint everyone thought that he was completely crazy. Like that's, oh, that's what you drew. Like that's what you saw looking at this. And it was an abstraction, but I'm really glad to be able to see the abstraction of movement and where we need to go in the future. Every single time I teach than trying to draw an exact replica of exactly what exists today. So I would really encourage people. And I wrote an article in Mantra Magazine called Yoga and the Divine Feminine. Like we all know, I think even people that are you know, very traditional yogis, we all are, I think, pretty clear that we're in kind of the age of the divine feminine. So why not let this be the time that you give yourself the freedom to honor the traditional principles, but let your body flow wherever it wants to flow and follow your intuition? Because I think, you know, the time where people are so stuck to like doing, you know, A to B to C, at a certain point, you're actually limiting your students' evolution in mm-hmm. the practice as well. And I think it's the time to allow your intuition to take a little bit more of a prevalent role in your teaching. And, you know, it's not to say that everyone needs to teach exactly like I do. I don't, you know, I don't believe that at all. But whatever it is that you do, 
let it come from not just your heart, but from that channeling from your sixth and seventh chakra where you're that open antenna to the universal energy that's trying to clearly guide us all to a different life than we're living right now. You know, every time we turn on to the news, it's bombings and beheadings and all these terrible things. It's like the only thing there is to do is turn to your mat and be that antenna and channel that universal energy because the universal energy is out there trying to guide us in a different path. Sure, some of those people clearly are not listening to that path, but the ones that are need to actively act on it. Mm -hmm. Don't just sit there and, you know, let other people that are stuck in tradition lead the way. That's, I'm sorry, it's the wrong way. To try to stick to 6,000-year-old tradition right now makes no sense whatsoever. So for... For you, how did the universe speak through you in the time that you were 21 and started practicing regularly? What what for you changed? What actually catalyzed you from being the person who was practicing every day to then discovering that you were meant to create booty yoga? <laughs> well, it's kind of a, a crazy culmination of events. And as I said, I've never actually said these out loud on a podcast before so this is going to be a big one i hope i get to use it too yes indeed all of this is accessible to you so shortly after i found yoga same boyfriend same same year of my life 19 like approaching 20 i was living in boulder colorado and i was walking down the street on pearl street which is like a walking mall been there many times okay so i was walking down pearl street and at the time was definitely not, I would say, compared to now, especially not spiritually open, had like just started to kind of scratch the surfaces of even calm and the feeling that something else might be out there kind of thing. Um, even just in that first experience of meditation where my teacher had to kind of pull me out of it, I was like, wow, there's there's other things that I'm able to tap into that I've never known before. So just kind of like walking down the street and this old crazy lady at least 70 if not 80 started like kind of chasing me down the street why (laughs) just one of those old crazy ladies so she started chasing me down the street and she's like i have a message for you and i was like yes her name was elizabeth and so was mine by law although don't ever call me elizabeth i'll cut you just kidding (laughs) Uh, we gotta cut that piece out (laughs) (laughs) so uh, this lady elizabeth it's like, I have this message for you. And I stopped and listened to her. And she was like, you are a channel. You're a healer. At the same time I'm listening to her, I'm also thinking like, this lady is effing crazy. <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt. But I'm trying to listen to her. But also my, you know, my logical brain that's trying to block any type of spiritual messages is kind of like jumping in to try to interject. And I listen to her and she tells me, you're going to be a student of Dolores Cannon. She's a famous past life regression therapist and that's your path. You're going to change thousands of lives. And at the time in my head, I was like, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do now having not, you know, having not this Olympic path. Like, what am I going to do now? And she's like, you're going to heal everybody. Thousands of people are going to be this huge thing. You're going to learn from this famous lady. So I had never even known who Dolores Cannon was. So I left this meeting being like, that was bizarre. But of course, what was the only thing I could think of when I left? Hmm. Who was this lady? Dolores Cannon, I gotta find out. 
ironically I'm also listening to one of her books on my phone right now and I've been listening to it for like six hours and can't stop I was outside tanning my buns listening to Dolores Cannon (laughs) um so I looked up Dolores Cannon and she's a very famous past life regression therapist for those who are not familiar with past life regression can you give like a brief synopsis yes absolutely so she uses a hip hypnosis method that is specifically aimed at helping people go back further than just this life. So a lot of hypnotic methods are used to manage or diminish traumatic events or symptoms of anxiety. She helps you actually go back further than birth to access past lives that have relevant information to what is part of our lesson in life this time. So I research her. She's this old lady that's published like 10 books. She's in Arkansas in Fayetteville, which is like the middle of nowhere. And I start reading her books and immediately I'm like, literally cannot stop reading. Like even if I have to go pee, I can't stop reading the book. My boyfriend starts wondering what's wrong with me. And I'm like, oh my God, this explains everything I feel like I've ever known to be true, but couldn't vocalize. And I go on her website and I look to see if she has some certification program and she doesn't. She doesn't teach anybody. And I was like, this lady has lied to me. She just wanted me to buy her book. This is so wrong. I was like, now I'm all up in this book and all I want to know is how to do this because it's so cool. So I get on her mailing list, which is the only thing I knew how to do. And this was like back, not now when like internet marketing is like a big thing. This was like when you get on someone's list and you're like, please email me, like I'm dying for your email to show up in my inbox. So one day, lo and behold, I get an email from her that's like, I'm launching my teacher certification program. Like if you wanna do it, this is the first group, I'm only taking 10 students, you have to fill out this application. So my application being the cocky little a-hole 20 year old that I was, was this crazy lady ran up to me on the street and told me I was gonna be one of your students. So basically it already happened, so high five, see you in, a, see you in Arkansas. <laughs> And I got in, even though that was clearly not the intention that everybody else had written on their application. They probably were like, I'm a healer and I'm this and that. And I was she just like, felt your vibe, though. I was like, it already happened. And I was like, I already know from reading your books that you're already surrounded by spirit guides and they're probably telling you that I'm your girl. So high five, this already <laughs> happened. Call See me ya in Fayetteville. See you soon, sister. <laughs> so of course I got in and I drove 17 hours to Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I learned from her and she is an exceptional woman. And I will say that I was in her first group and there were 10 of us. I would say at least eight had definitive healing abilities. And I sat there thinking like, wow, (laughs) I don't know why I'm here. Everyone else can like cure cancer with their hands and do all these crazy things. And I'm just sitting back thinking, who the heck am I? And like, how on earth did I get here? But I'm listening. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm really good at listening to verbal cues and applying them right away. To me, there's no, if you tell me how to do something, I have a, an in-depth understanding right away. Mm-hmm. So I went to this program and right away in the very first, I would say half hour, one of the people next to me, if she's listening, Beata, she was. Um, she had gone to John of God in Brazil. Do you know anything about yeah, John of God? Yeah, I've heard of him. Okay. So she went to John of God in Brazil when she was really young, had like some terminal illness, something crazy. I don't remember what it was, but went was healed by John of God. And then by way of John of God healing her, ended up absorbing some of his healing energy. So she spent the rest of her life living at his place outside of Brasilia 
as a student of John of God, but also a healer. And whenever somebody would come near her that had something that had to be healed, she would do this thing that I, I don't think I could ever recreate it if I ever tried. But imagine that a string was tied to the top of your head, your crown chakra, and you completely relaxed your entire body. And then someone were to shake it rapidly side to side like a puppet and your whole body just kind of did this like side to side convulsion while also whistling like a teapot. That would happen. And she was this very, I don't know a nice way to describe her. She was just really like, she was really pretty, but she was like very mousy and demure and like glasses and always kind of hunched over. Didn't want anybody to really like see her. And whenever this would happen, she'd get really, really embarrassed and be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, it's so embarrassing. It's been happening to me for so many years. And when she did it the first time, she looked at this guy to my left who was probably in his 70s and she was like you have cancer and he was like yeah I do and she was like they were working on your cancer so of course at while all this is happening I'm sitting there going like what did I get myself into this crazy lady walked up to me on the street and now I'm here with people that can heal cancer who the heck am I why am I here um so it took me a second to really allow myself to believe that I was equal to the people that I was sitting with at the table because everyone had a a very, you know, a skill that could be easily defined. I didn't really have a skill at that point that I felt like I could define. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I don't think had been developed yet. Um, so I went through this whole training and I left and started to practice right away. And I had one experience with a woman named Sky. She was giving me a massage And at the time I was just starting my practice and she was like, you know, I'll trade you a massage if you do a past life regression on me. I have these tumors that keep popping up all over my abdomen. She's like, I've had like 12 surgeries and it never goes away. And I was like, okay, well, I'm like, I just started. I'll do my best, but let's see what happens. I'm a good student. So we do this session and the way my teacher Dolores teaches you to do it, typically in a session, you go through three past lives. And it's all directed from the subconscious. So whatever, like if I were doing it for you, your subconscious would dictate what the three most relevant lives are to your experience right now. So I wouldn't ask your subconscious to take you to an experience that was completely outside of any information that was relevant to you today. So her first life was what Dolores Cannon calls a meat and potatoes life. It's just kind of like a wah, wah, like that's kind of boring, which is very common to go to at first because your body's trying to get used to it and there's nothing traumatic to experience. So your body gives you kind of an easy life to kind of identify like what your skin looks like and what your clothes like so you don't panic because it's not that multiplied with also a traumatic experience. But typically as you go deeper and you're getting more used to it, your brain allows you to go deeper to things that might be a little bit more scary. So her second life, she went to very clearly when we first came into the life, she was um, chained to the masthead or not. She was. So she was watching woman that was chained to the masthead of a ship. She was man. But she was looking at this woman that was chained to a masthead of a ship and she was talking to me. And this is a woman that was very Christian, very proper. And I would say not very well educated, like wouldn't necessarily have the knowledge that was coming out in this session and was laughing to me about how this woman was chained to the masthead of the ship and how she was going to rape her and behead her. And it was going to be really funny to watch her head roll off the back of the ship. So I was trying my best to stay very calm, but knowing what this woman was like 
prior and then watching her clearly experience a completely different reality where she was laughing about how fun it was to rape a woman and behead her knew I knew that I was onto something that needed more exploration so we stayed in that life for a while um I learned a lot about where she was timing she was a viking she was a man and um they were actually just coming to shore on Asia and I came into that knowing that she thought it was really fun to behead Asians and I actually got to watch the emotion and the laughter and like the sick twisted experience of a viking but coming out of a woman that was like a very uptight Christian Hawaiian woman. Um, So that was definitely an intense moment for me. But what was even more intense was the life that she went to next. So the next life, because remember, she had these recurring tumors in her abdomen. And she when she came to me, she's like, if you can get these to stop, like, I'll give you everything. Like, I just want to stop having surgery. So the next life we went to her third life, she was Native American, a man again. And she could communicate with animals. So every time she would go to hunt, she would communicate with the animal and then she didn't have the heart to shoot them. So every time they'd come back from a hunt, they'd come back to their tribe and her family would get no food. And at a certain point, the tribe leader was like, you need to be an example for everyone in this tribe. You are not allowed to come back without food. And she's like, but I can communicate with the animals. I can't shoot them. And he was like, if you come back from one more hunt before the winter without food, we're going to let your family starve as an example. Like you have to contribute to the whole tribe. That is your job. That is your role. So the wife, you know, begged, please, like we're starving. Please bring back food. You can do this. I believe in you. And they went off for the last hunt before the winter came. When he went off to the hunt, he was standing on a cliff and he was really dedicated to bringing home food for his family. He wasn't going to let his family starve. But he was on a cliff and he was looking off the cliff. And as he was going to shoot a deer or an elk, I guess it was a deer elk, it had antlers. Um, He saw a hawk swoop down and he could start talking to the hawk and he got distracted and slipped off the cliff and fell and impaled himself on a branch. So a branch went right through his abdomen. And apparently, according to him, the way they used to hunt, they'd spread really far apart so that they could get as much um, meat as possible without, you know, being too close to each other. Yeah, scaring away the prey that may. Exactly. So he fell and impaled himself and nobody ever found him. So they assumed that he deserted the tribe to run away because he didn't want to shoot an animal. So the chief let his family starve to death as an example to the tribe. So he died by accident, but the tribe believed that he deserted them and they let the family starve. And once he, she experienced that pain, she never had another tumor again. Because wow. that literally, that was that pain and memory constantly resurfing. It didn't, it didn't matter how many times they removed it surgically. Yeah. The tumors kept popping back up, popping up, back up. And as soon as she actually experienced it, she, I mean, when she came out of the hypnosis, she didn't, she literally looked at me and she's like, man, it didn't work, did it? And I was like, oh no, 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 it worked. I'm traumatized. I need to take a deep breath. Wow. Let's walk back up to the house. So did she experience the pain and thus like cry went through the emotional? So what's interesting, and this is something that I will definitely credit Dolores for, she and her method, when the subject experiences any type of pain or death, 
you cue them that they are allowed to remove themselves from their body and watch their death as an observer so that they don't have to experience the pain. You tell them experience this physical pain is completely optional. You can rise above your body and you can communicate the information to me from above. So I had her remove herself before she experienced any pain. Um, but when we walked back up to the house and I record all the sessions, so she wanted to listen to it and I prepped her. I was like, listen, you're talking about some pretty rough topics here for about an hour. I just want to prep you for it because I don't want you to freak yourself out. It took her about four hours to pull it together. And I had to have my mother-in-law at the time, Mayumi, calm her down, give her tea, meditate with her because she was having a really hard time because she had no recollection of any of it. Mm-hmm. And I will say that that... That moment for me, I was obviously practicing yoga on a daily basis. I lived on an organic permaculture farm where we literally every morning had to sit zazen meditation and practice yoga every morning before I would go cook for 30 people. So it's funny when I see all these comments on YouTube that are like, this prissy white, B-I-T-C-H, you know, like, (laughs) what does she know about yoga? It's like, I practiced karma yoga for six years on a farm cooking for 30 people like you wouldn't believe. I gave birth to my daughter in a Walmart baby pool in a yurt, which is basically a tent. So to all those people that see this like little blonde white girl and they're like, oh, this privileged whatever. Like, sure, I grew up in privilege, but I've done the other side too. And I, you know, I've done the karma yoga and I, I help people selflessly all the time. And I study all the time. I'm a total geek and I really deeply care about the practice of yoga. So for people to attack me on social media, I mean, I always take it with a grain of salt and try to turn it into a productive conversation because I don't feel like I need to defend myself. It's like, okay, what am I doing that is making you want to dig deeper in something else? Like what what I I look at it as an opportunity. Yeah. Mm. Yoga girl attacked me on Snapchat for like 10 Snapchats. Really? Yes. Over and over, like, oh my God, this isn't, I mean, it was the worst I've ever seen her. Oh my God, this isn't yoga. Oh my God, this girl's going to hurt somebody. Oh my God, oh my God. 10 Snapchats in a row making fun of me over and over and over again. And did I get an apology? Kind of. Honestly, her apology was worse than the act itself. Have you guys talked since? I've never met her. She attacked me without ever knowing me at all. And I reached out to her and I said, well, love for you to send her this interview. And please do. I, if you I ever want to try the practice, like, please, I encourage you to get to know me. I know what you're all about. And that Snapchat certainly did not I represent like you guys that. I to meet each other because both of you have gone through so much. And I feel that just as empowered women, like, I feel that you need to meet each other to help empower others. So I totally agree, and, and I'm so open, and I don't ever hold grudges, but, oh, wow. you know, to me, that was, um, it was a little bit, it was jolting for me, because I can't, I couldn't imagine a woman that was all about, you know, embracing other women, and showing kind of their vulnerable side, and then going out and, like, attacking me so wholeheartedly, it made no sense to me, so, Rachel, yeah. girl, I don't hold any grudges, I would love to meet you, I, to me, it's all about, learning from whatever has happened and transforming it from there so whatever has happened in the past it's in the past i just i just to me my main goal is i mean not just 
not just women. I do feel like my practice is primarily focused on women, but I just want to help all human beings evolve out of this place where they're living day to day based on emotional response and pain and suffering. And it's one of my biggest issues with Vipassana meditation or any type of Buddhist practice. Life is not suffering. I disagree. Like I'll put my gavel down on that one. Life is not suffering. And to tell people to meditate on that every day, I honestly believe is counterproductive to getting us out of here. Like if we're trying to evolve to the next evolution, every day meditating on life is suffering is not going to do it. That's going to keep your vibration low. If you don't believe that we have the ability to move ourselves vibrationally out of suffering, then what are you doing? Like you shouldn't be leading people. That's what I believe. If you get out of the maha, we're trying to get out of like that ending of samskara. Like, can we please move forward? Can we please move forward? Nobody wants. Like, I think acknowledging that all life is suffering is like. To me, complacency is the enemy, and life is suffering is the most complacent statement that ever has been and will ever be. Mm-hmm. That is not the case. We are able to move ourselves and the people that we're able to inspire out of that suffering. I don't suffer at all, ever. Even when bad things happen to me, suffering's optional. My husband committed suicide in 2012. Did I suffer? No. I allowed that to be a decision that he made for himself based on what his soul's path was. It didn't have anything to do with me. Suffering is a completely optional emotion that people don't need to experience. That's not to say that violence isn't going to happen in the world, but what can we do as practitioners and healers and intuitives to help bring new information to those groups of people. Because if you look at Muslim culture, for instance, most of them are illiterate. Most people that are committing these acts don't have enough vocabulary to truly read the Quran. So the people that are committing these heinous acts, they don't even know what they're doing. And the only thing that we can do is try to educate and keep raising the vibration without accepting that all life is suffering, because it's not. They say they know not what they do. And they genuinely don't. And all of the imams take advantage of and exploit the fact that they can't read the Quran and tell them what to believe. Because that is not what the actual Quran says. It's really sad. And I mean, if you think of, and I, on this Dolores Cannon book that I've been, it's funny, it's one of the more like early books that she wrote and all of her books are transcripts of her hypnotherapy sessions. She views herself as somebody that catalogs lost history. Mm. through people's regressions so she won't write about anything unless it's been verified three different from three different accounts and then she'll write about it so this book that i'm listening to keepers of the garden is one man that she regressed that went back to living lifetimes that were fourth dimensional not of this planet and everything i've been listening i mean the more i listen to it and i'm so glad i didn't listen to it when i was 21 because And I'll tell you about this in a second, but the more I've been alive and actively pursuing the work that I do, the more it's been clear to me that my soul energy is more like this person's that I've been listening to where people are like, why do you know that? How do you like, how do you know that? There were so many times in my life where I would say something and my logical human brain would be like, why did you just lie? And then it would be right. And people would award me for it. And I realized it's not that I'm lying. That's intuition. There are messages that I'm being given and answers that I'm being given. And I'm answering without my human brain having ever learned them before. So 
I believe that every human has access to all that information. It's just a question of whether you're doing the right things to align your chakra system and calm your body to be able to listen to those messages. And as I've gotten older, I've been able to listen to those messages. And now that I'm listening to this, I really, it's become very clear to me that whatever my soul energy is, is very much in alignment with this person that she regressed. Everything that I teach is completely channeled. And I practice something that I call intentional ignorance, which is kind of a funny concept. And as you know, when you're in the yoga community, and for me, I'm in the yoga community, I'm in the entrepreneurial community community because I've created all these businesses and then I my you know life's work to me is in personal development and alternative therapy so in that realm people are like oh have you read this book have you read that book you know this person and I have to always just kind of like put my hands in prayer and be like I know this is going to sound crazy but I practice intentional ignorance I don't want to read what anybody else has to say because exactly exactly and it's not from a place of ego honestly it's not that like you know, everyone has something amazing to share, but I know that if I read other people's stuff, that it's going to inherently influence whatever I have to say. And, and to me, to be a true channel, I cannot be influenced by anybody else's information. So it's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to have only now been listening to this audiobook because had I listened to this at 21, when I first listened to some of her other stuff that was completely not even in the same vein as this book, it would have influenced me. And then I would have always questioned like, you know, is this because of this or did I, you know, am I saying this because I listened to this? And now that I'm so on this path and I've written a book and I have this method that I teach people. And again, it's the kind of thing where it's never coming from ego. It's not like I'm the founder. I just feel like, again, I'm the antenna. Now that I'm listening to this, it's more of an echo than information that I would have gotten ahead of time where I'm like, yes, what's wrong with our, and I, this is going to come as a shock to people, but what this book is talking about when he's channeling from a different fourth dimensional place, what causes all of our problems is that we operate more from the heart. And I know that that's hard to hear because all people are like, oh, do it more from your heart. But what actually keeps our vibration low is operating from the heart instead of the head. And I know that's hard for people to hear because people think that we operate even lower than that, right? Everyone operates on this first first chakra, second chakra, like primal need to survive and then kind of just like have lots of sex and be hedonistic. But I feel like we've really evolved beyond that. So if you look at kind of like the culmination of our civilization, we used to, when we were cavemen, I'm sure operate first and second chakra primarily. But I feel like right now we're really stuck at this fourth chakra, like doing everything from the heart, which is really why we have so much violence and so much religion, which is basically just politics, like packaged a different way. It's all coming from the heart. So when we can truly bring our energy up a little bit more to sixth and seventh chakra where we're aligning more with universal logic universal principles and we're not intuition intuition and we're not denying the heart right where i believe that people can only be as spiritual as they are grounded you have to have that grounding that energy do you know are you familiar with the 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 taurus yes okay So the heart, if you look at the body as a torus, right? It's zero point energy is the heart chakra, right? So the chakra system in general is a torus. All living things form a torus. So so meaning that the the heart chakra is the middle of the torus. Middle of the torus, right? So for something to be a torus, it has to have a zero point, which is basically the heart or the battery. Then energy has to flow at the same 
exact frequency, same direction, same speed, bilaterally around circle, and then contact with some type of friction back at zero point to spark that battery again. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we see when people get like two into their lower chakras, that heart spark at zero point gets more diminished, more diminished, more diminished because that energy isn't flowing equally up, up as down, down, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we also see, if you look back at ancient gurus who have been able to meditate themselves out of existence, what do they do at the very opposite side of the spectrum, right? They push all their energy into their upper chakras, chakras. shut off the energy that's going down below, and they shut off their battery. So for us to exist as living creatures, we have to have that equal up and down flow to constantly be fulfilling that energy point of the zero point battery at the heart chakra on Ahata. So... One of the things that's interesting is that that exact fueling that keeps our body going is what keeps drawing the energy to making all of these decisions that keep holding our vibration relatively low. So whereas, you know, 3000 years ago, we may have been really operating in first and second chakra. Now we're really primarily operating, I would say, at third and fourth chakra, especially the United States. We have like a major third chakra imbalance. Our greed, our like constant ego. It's like we've got a major third chakra imbalance. Capitalism Capitalism is is America. And it's very much so based on, you know, how can we gain more, gain more, gain more. And at the same time, socialism, I believe wholeheartedly, is also not at all the oh, way like totally, they're two opposite yeah, they're equally <laughs> wrong they're opposite sides thank you they're equally wrong sides of the spectrum so when Dolores regresses this guy in Keepers of the Garden one of the things and you have to remember that when you regress somebody they're no longer themselves even their speech patterns when they talk they talk in a collective we their intonations very specific the words they use are very specific and they talk about how Basically, what differentiates fourth dimensional energy beings from us is the fact that they operate primarily from logic and from their upper chakras. And that if they were to come here to try to live an earthly life, they would be so fearful and anxious and feel so out of place because they don't understand even like our small interactions or like what we would deem like a small fight with a brother or a sister would be devastating to them as humans or as beings because they're completely self-regulating once you go up to that point of logic and universal connection there's no small petty fight that's worth fighting and i feel like that on a day-to-day basis in the work that i do there's so many times that i've been attacked where there's no need for me to fight back because it's only pushing energy in the wrong direction. I'm just going to keep being the channel. If you want to keep pushing your energy to fight me, go ahead. Eventually it's going to tire you out, but I'm here trying to raise our collective vibration. So as soon as you want to join me in that and stop having an ego battle with how I'm doing something quote unquote wrong, great, come join me. Because at the end of the day, all I really want is for people to realize that the only anxiety or fear that they have to feel is self-inflicted. It's all self-inflicted. If you want to not suffer, not feel fear, not feel anxiety, it takes a few simple tweaks to how you live your day-to-day life and how you talk to yourself and how you align yourself with whatever universal energy is out there to make changes in your life because you don't have to be stuck all the time. You can break free. Wow. That's, that's a super potent way of putting it. And I feel that for our listeners who are listening at home, how do they go about applying this information? There are a few different ways. I would say at the core, 
And I know that I mentioned it. My method teaches people to interrupt that emotional response with logic and then balance it with intuition. In my practice, we call it the Eli triangle. So a lot of my friends will, you know, or I call everyone my friends because everyone that comes through my program, I build a personal connection with every single, like I have over 3000 instructors. I know all of them by name. I know what they're doing, where they live. Rebecca Hart loves you, by the way. I love Rebecca. Rebecca. She's my homegirl. Irie Angel. Yeah. She's, she's just DJing, love. keeping it real. She's coming next week to my retreat in Scottsdale. I'm so awesome. pumped. And so are all the Tiki girls. All the Tiki girls, even the owner, they're all yeah. certified in booty yoga now. Yeah. You got um, Lindsay is yep. one of my great friends. I love she Lindsay. now goes by Moonshine. Yeah. But um, yeah, Lindsay's definitely been in my heart for a very long time. They're all amazing. It's just like... Yeah, such good vibes. Tiki girls for life. Those are my homegirls. For sure. And I mean, to me, those are the, you know, when you're in the yoga community, it's always been really surprising to me how much you come against these people that are really operating in ego. And what I would consider, remember how I was just talking about how I believe that people can only be as spiritual as they are grounded. I feel like a lot of yoga instructors get too much into their upper chakras without having that grounded practice. And they start to believe to a degree that they're almost godly and start to exhibit some of the same behaviors that someone that was operating too much in their lower chakras would exhibit. Mm -hmm. And I see that all the time. And to me, it's, you know, just like you wouldn't want to talk to somebody if you were just kind of like an average everyday Joe, you wouldn't want to have somebody come up to you and be like, oh my God, your chakras are so open today. I can like see your thick chakra like shining toward my heart. Like someone would be like, you're crazy. Have a nice day. Peace out. Deuces. You're bizarre. At the same time, you like you probably wouldn't have a very intellectual conversation with somebody that lived a sedentary life that only watched soap operas every day. That is true. (laughs) So on both sides of the spectrum, it's completely unrelatable. And on both sides, there's a lot of judgment for the other. So to have that practice where you're finding a way to like make sure that that Taurus is completely fulfilled energetically and you have that equally spiritual and grounded connection is so important. As the Buddha said, choose the middle path. The middle path, the the middle path every time, the, the zero point that actually charges the battery that allows you to effectively communicate with the people around you and I can one of my biggest gifts in this world is to communicate esoteric or new age concepts to the everyday person because I'm not some hippy dippy like pot smoking person that's gonna go talk to you about how like your chakras are shining I'll tell you what chakras are out of balance and how that's causing self-sabotage in your life but I'm gonna do it in a way that's very relatable that draws on very real world application so that you can actually make changes because there's people are evolved enough in society today where they need you to speak their language to make the changes and I feel like that's where I am blessed in that area you know I grew up like on the east side of New York City and then I moved to Connecticut and I you know my parents were all about like me having the Ivy League education and I'm blessed that I have the intellect and academic prowess that I have and I feel like now I'm at a point where I'm finding a way to use that to my advantage to communicate these more esoteric topics to people that desperately need them everybody needs to understand them I don't care if you're Christian I don't care if you're Muslim I don't care if you're Jewish everybody needs to understand them it's a universal truth 
that transcends any religious upbringing that you have. And it's really a question of taking a look at your current belief system and how you can give that a 3.0 upgrade to help it shift your overall vibration, how you're living your life. And I teach that with the break method. And I do it in workshops. I have an online course that launches in mid-September at breakmethod.com. And it's something that is what I would consider self-sustainable. Nothing that I would ever teach is something that would require you to come back to me. In fact, I'm so against any model that ever requires you to be dependent on the teacher. I'm all about sustainability. So to me, like this world that we've created all these like health coaches and life coaches, most of those people, if you're listening, have no business charging you $5,000 because they can't even keep their own damn life straight. I literally just had trust me when I say that with a friend of mine. If someone charging you five thousand dollars to help you with your life i would go inspect their life with a fucking microscope because their life is wrong and i would never do that to you everything that i do in my practice is to give you the tools to do it for yourself because the only way to do it forever is to learn how to do it yourself mm-hmm. i'm not going to do it for you i'm going to give you the tools i'm going to give you the accountability i'll show you the path but it's up to you And then after you make the change, then you help others. That's your karma. And that's something that I build into my program where it's not like, you know, if I help you and I change your life, great. Now you better damn go out into your community and help your friends and your family with the same tools. I don't expect everyone to come back to me. You're blessed to have had the chance to come work with me. Now go to your communities and you be the catalyst. Yeah. Bless them. Empowerment. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm most excited about next year, which I'm really excited to announce on this podcast, and I got to give a big shout out to Acacia Red Elk. She's a champion powwow dancer. She's unbelievable. And we've been working on this together. So my retreats that I lead, they're more of the like luxury retreat setting. And you and I were talking about this earlier by the pool. Like, let's face it. It's a world where we have to make money to keep building things and to keep moving business forward and to keep building you know new methods and like creating content to have the flow of financial freedom to be able to share with as many people as possible faux show that's what we got to do so we got to do that so i lead these luxury retreats but 10 percent of every luxury retreat i pay into an account where i'm able to go to low-income areas of the country and go do these exact same workshops in their exact same format that you would pay two thousand three thousand dollars where i'm able to do those for free for the same amount of people in low-income areas and i've worked with the Cassia red elk and one of the things that i feel and i think we all in the united states feel this to a degree even if we're not acknowledging it what we've done to the native americans is terrible i think we can all draw on references and look back at history what we've done to them is terrible and they're now a culture that experiences the highest rates of obesity drug addiction sexual abuse and they need our help and i've been called ever since i created booty yoga to go back to those indian reservations and to give back to those communities and i'm doing a tour of eight native american reservations all of next year for free any woman that wants to come is able to come Um, It's my entire break method, all the movement philosophy. They get all my meal plans for free. I want those communities to rise back up. They're so innately powerful and in tune with the spirit realm, and they need to be given back their power because they're they're amazing antennas, just like we've been talking about, and no one's given them their power back, and that's what I'm really focused on next year. That's beautiful. I just got back from Havasupai. Have you Mm -hmm. ever heard of Havasupai? Yeah. Yeah, I went there for a five-day retreat, and taught yoga 
um, to a bunch of like working professionals, really sweet people, um, for a good group called Xanadu Life. And, um, it was so amazing because I I met on the last day actually there, I got invited to a sweat lodge, um, with the Indians there. Mm -hmm. And, um, I met a man named Rising Sun who was a, you know, Havasupai Indian, And he was just talking about the number of changes that the community has had even within that small environment and how imperative it is for them to have education because because they have been on this reservation for so long, there's not a lot of outside secular thought. At all. And a lot of them are encouraged not to really do anything off of the reservation. Exactly. And so it's kind of like whatever is in the reservation is what stays in the reservation. And he was explaining that the elders are now passing away. And thus this this lineage of divine wisdom of like sowing the seeds and really like being self-sufficient is now disintegrating. And the Americans are coming in and, you know putting in the fried foods and the sodas and And that's why their obesity rates are so high their bodies aren't able to break it down i feel like that's the first the first like demolition of any culture is their health and after that then they're you know sucking on the straw of the the soda and therefore they're getting the sugar not able to focus in class not able to learn not able to stay in a sense of alertness that allows them to actually reach those higher states of being able to draw in the information that they need to progress and it's it's pretty um it's pretty uh, intense because I, I made him a promise that next time I come, I'm going to teach them yoga. Absolutely. And they're they're really open to learning. And that's the thing. Akasi like, had to so... talk to all these chiefs and ask if I could come. And eight different tribes agreed for me to come. And they gave reference to the white buffalo, which apparently is this story that's been told throughout all of their cultures about this outsider that's coming to help basically free their society from what we've done to them and they've all felt like what we're talking about and what she's presenting to them is enough in alignment with that that they're willing to let me come and essentially teach them how to break themselves out of these chains of self-doubt and destruction and emotional addiction so i mean one of the things that i think and i teach it all the time when people always say like alcoholism is genetic it's not genetic root chakra instability breeds root chakra instability so when you have an when you grow up in an addictive household with root chakra instability you are likely to recreate that same scenario in your life so it's not necessarily that it's genetic. It's not in your blood. It's in your conditioning through your parent chakra imbalance. And that's what we've seen passed on in generations of Native American culture since we overtook them and, you know, Push basically them pushed them off their own land and put them into these small communities and took away their power. When you take a really powerful person and you basically treat them like an animal, that animalistic power and aggression has to go somewhere. And unfortunately, it's going to kids and wives and that's not okay so that needs to be that needs to be fixed and i'm up for the task wow well white buffalo go white buffalo (laughs) um and interestingly enough i should mention that 
one of the things that led me to the creation of Booty was having a really, and I won't get too into it, but having that really traumatic birth with my daughter, Sarai. I actually want you to go into that. I really want you to elaborate on the, like you were saying, like the the relationship that you had with your your first love and then, Mm -hmm. you know, then marrying his brother and having the child with his brother and that whole, like that I feel, for so many women, like I have a friend of mine who's literally pregnant right now and she is just going through so much turmoil and just so much uh I would say like almost like mind games because it's like you know she has a boyfriend but she has someone else who she's in love with Mm. and it's just like this constant uh you know, and you're carrying a baby, it's like that this is a life yeah, inside a of one. you. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that hearing your story and yeah, hearing absolutely. what you've gone through to come out to be as successful as you are will touch so many women. Um game. So the same boyfriend that I was with when I found my yoga practice, the Anisari Yogi that meditated and really showed me another side of life and spirituality than I'd ever been exposed to before. We moved to Hawaii. We made the decision jointly to move to Hawaii when we'd been dating for, I mean, time all kind of collapses on itself, but I would assume it was like four years. We moved to Hawaii and um, I had been having some medical problems from pushing it definitely way too hard at work, going out with clients, I'd end up going into the field of PR and I'd been pushing it way too hard and, you know, staying up late with clients and drinking and not taking care of my body and not prioritizing my yoga practice. So I think to me, when I looked at going to Hawaii, to me, it was more of an escape where I would get to heal my body. And I don't think I thought that it would be there for as long as I ended up being there. So we moved and it was a yoga retreat center in the Big Island, Kealakekua, which is a very sacred spiritual place. I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's pretty epic. I've heard that it's absolutely amazing. So we went there and I would say on my first or second night, I remembered a really vivid experience when I was about three, three and a half of seeing spirits or things that were not in physical body and pointing to my parents and being like being really scared and then being like honey you're crazy and then this one picture where my family had a window seat and we we're all getting in there for a family picture and in the picture I'm like going to the side pointing and I'm like freaking out about something and my parents are like smile for the picture and when they took the picture the light from the flash actually illuminated the face of the person that I was pointing at behind the window for whatever oh, reason. My goodness. And still to this day, my mom keeps it in a photo album and like freaks out on it every time and like kind of like scurries by it and tries to pretend like it's not there. And I'm like, mom, look at the picture. And she's like, I don't want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like that side of me started to come out again when I moved to Hawaii. It, it, all of a sudden, for whoever has been to Hawaii before there, and I've only been to Kauai, Oahu, and the Big Island, but I will say that the Big Island has this, I would say energy where the veil between what's physically here and what's energetically here 
feels really, really thin. You could even be doing something, you know, seemingly menial and all of a sudden catch a glimpse of something where you're like, oh my God, I'm not even on drugs right now. What was that? And when you talk to Native Hawaiians, that's just normal life for them. Like they've already accepted it. They've lived there their whole lives. They have generations of stories. They know that veil is that thin and they see that stuff all the time. So there's no like ancient Hawaiian or Hawaiian that you talk to about something like that that isn't able to very quickly reference some like ancient Hawaiian text and be like, oh, that's the blah, 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 blah. And you're like, cool, glad that I'm not crazy. Have a great day. Like the night marchers. I saw the night marchers when I was there maybe in the first two months. Um, I won't get into that. But when I first moved to Hawaii, it was definitely a very intense, energetic experience for me. And it wasn't anxiety inducing like I like it was for me when I was young this was more just like wow this is real this is intense and I was there for a few months with my boyfriend before we decided to go our separate ways and his mom was from Japan Mayumi Oda she's a very famous artist and she ran this thing called Goddess Academy and all these people would like influx from Japan to learn from her like how to be these like goddess women and I have always operated very much in my masculine and was not very good at having somebody try to make me submissive. It was not my jam. <laughs> so we had a lot of headbutting interaction. I'm happy to say now that I think we have the utmost respect for each other. And I really regard her as one of my like most profound teachers in life. Um, even down, and I told you this earlier, like the way I cut vegetables irked her, the way I set the table made her so mad to the point where I was getting like hip thrust to the side and like yelled at in Japanese as being a gaijin. And eventually I rose to the occasion and learned how to do all of these things. Cause I was like, Psh, I can do anything you can do. And then some, so let me show you how good I can chop this vegetable right now. So I went through that whole practice of karma yoga where I was like, you know, providing food and services for 30 plus people on our retreat center every day and not getting paid for it at all. In fact, just kind of getting yelled at for it all the time. And um, that practice really showed me in this relationship. And, you know, it's kind of awkward now to be in a position where you're like talking about these personal things in a public forum, because for all we know, like Zach listens to Yoga Revealed. So if you're listening to this, buddy, got nothing but love for you. I'm sure you hate me, but love, brother. So I think in my experience, at least, and I acknowledge being somebody that teaches all about chakra imbalance, all we're able to do as humans is view our lives and our the stimulus that comes into our eyes or our ears or any of our senses and have our brain formulate some definition based on our chakra imbalance. So I always tell students, every day you live your life is based on your chakra imbalanced glasses. And what you perceive happening is very different than what I would perceive happening. And that doesn't mean that either of us are liars. It's just how our brain is choosing to associate meaning. So Zach, if you're listening to this and you decided a totally different meaning, Lots of love, nothing but love. This is this is my perception. This is my story. So Zach definitely was very much wanting his mom's attention. And it was very clear to me, even as an outsider, that his mom, because she ran this like goddess academy and was all about like all of her paintings are always of like the divine feminine and all these goddesses. Like there's no men anywhere. Nothing about men. She was celibate, like no men anything. Woman, woman, woman. Vagina, vagina, vagina. And yet she had two sons. So clearly, once I was able to rise to the occasion, there was this shift in 
energy where all of a sudden, instead of getting yelled at all the time, I was getting a lot of positive energy and reinforcement from her because in, in essence, I was that goddess that she was trying to create in all of these kind of submissive Japanese women. But because I'm a New York Jew, I was taking her teachings, but giving it back to her in a way that I think more mirrored who she was. So when I gave that back to her, I think she saw me as kind of this like very powerful goddess energy where it was like, yes, this is what I've been trying to create. And it like finally manifested in you. And my relationship with Zach ended up, you know, falling apart for various reasons. And I really felt like, you know, he went on his first trip away from me. And I realized when he left and I dropped off at the airport that we had never really been apart much for four years. There was a part of our relationship where we were back and forth long distance, but we were pretty much together for like the last few years all the time. And when he left, I felt this energetic release where all of a sudden I, it was like my conscious brain remembered that there were all these things that I used to be that I haven't been for a few years. And it was just trying to remind me like, for whatever reason, it's not that this person's tried to stifle all of that, but your soul energy and who you are as a person has been stifled in this relationship with this person and it's not a good fit for you because all of a sudden my energy felt free to like extend all the way out through my fingertips and I felt like this really powerful re-energized renewed person that was just so happy he was gone and it wasn't in a way where I was like angry at him it was just like my soul energy was able to expand where it had been really contracted for years and I forgot what it felt like to have it take up all that space Mm. and as he was gone I realized I you know I knew enough about myself to know like this is how I'm supposed to feel like my energy is supposed to take up this much space I shouldn't have to dumb it down or quiet down or not act this way or not do this because of somebody else I was like this is I'm supposed to take up this much space this feels right to me if anything your lover should actually make that space even bigger yeah (laughs) and he definitely wasn't doing that and it wasn't because he was trying to it was just I wrote an article that I think is going to be published on mind body green called um, hypoallergenic or sorry, toxic relationships with hypoallergenic people. So you could have like individually the two most hypoallergenic, like sweet, wonderful, good hearted people, but you throw them together and the relationship is unbelievably toxic and it has to do with a deficit in energy exchange. So by themselves, when they're completely in control of hundred percent of their own energy, fine, but they don't share and receive energy the same way. So it brings the relationship to this terrible deficit where they're both basically basically dying energetically. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what was happening with Zach and I, where it's like on our own, we were really good people, but together we were not like our energies were not compatible at all. And I broke up with him. And at the time I was thinking, you know, there's no way his mom's going to accept that. Like, I, you know, I'm going to have to leave Hawaii. I had a pretty good deal there. And, but I was cool with it. And I like booked, you know, the stuff to send my car back to California. I was ready to go back to California. And this weird thing happened with his younger brother where we had always had a connection and would like go on trips together and, you know, would go hiking and we would do the New York Times crossword puzzle together. And um, we went to go... I don't remember how it started. I think I had, it was either a dream or I was like sitting on a beach somewhere and I kind of like astrally projected to this place where we basically, his brother and I were one soul. And I know that sounds kind of 
crazy. Remember, I'm still the New York Jew here that's super practical, but I somehow astrally projected out of my body and realized that we were one soul. And I started to talk to him about this and we went to this amazing astrologer that lived on the island. I don't remember, they called him the star man. I think his name was Joseph. I don't remember his last name. He made these amazing tarot cards that I think were called like the crystal child cards. I don't remember what they were, but they're epic if you can find them. So we went and got our horse or our um, charts done. And when we went, the very first thing that happened, he sat down and he like grabbed both of our charts and he was like, the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire career just happened. And we were like, yes. And he was like, first of all, no, he was like, it's only been once or twice in my career ever. And I've been doing this for 30 years that anybody has a yod. And I said, what's a yod? So a yod apparently is a Hebrew word for the finger of God. And it's this very specific alignment that forms this like equilateral triangle in a specific place. And he was like, it's so rare that I see these. But he was like, what's even more rare is if I put your chart and you guys both have a yod. And if I put your yods on top of each other, your charts are completely symmetrical. Literally, like every right I have at this degree, he has a left at that degree. Every right like down at this degree, he has a left down at that degree. When you put the the equilateral triangles on top of each other, our charts were exactly identical, but polar opposite mm-hmm. and he was like I've never seen anything Equal like it before inverse. yes and he was like you guys are he was like I've never been more confident about it in my life you guys are twin souls you guys were literally part of one soul at one point and he was like I just want to warn you this can be the best thing ever or it can be the worst thing ever just because you're from the same soul energy doesn't mean that it's going to be great he was like it could be horrifying And we went through this, you know, we went into our relationship obviously with a lot of turmoil because I had left a man and then months later started dating his younger brother, which is socially super unacceptable. And obviously there was a lot of guilt and shame about it from other people, but I will say that I never personally felt guilt and shame. I think that, not that I'm immune to social construct, but to a degree I am. I don't think I've ever really had that You know, if someone tells me I should feel a certain way, there will be a part of me that logically is like, should I feel that way? And then there's a part of my intuition that's like, nope, that's not real. That's just socialization. And then I just feel free of it, which I think is part of the reason that I'm resilient where I am in my life, because I've always been able to delineate social construct from more like universal construct, if that makes sense. So I made this decision consciously to go into this relationship with G, my twin, my twin flame, and we had an amazing daughter. I got pregnant with Sarai. And one of the things that I think is the most amazing, so Zach, who I'd been with prior, when I was 19 and we'd been dating for a couple of years, I got pregnant and I didn't find out until I was really like far into my pregnancy. Mm. And I really felt strongly that I wanted to keep the baby. I was like positive I wanted to keep the baby. I knew that I could, you know, I had the mental skills. I was making enough money. I could keep this baby. And he really was adamantly opposed. And I don't have any animosity toward him for how the situation was handled. But for any woman that's out there listening that has dealt with a situation where you ended up getting an abortion that you didn't really want to have for, you know, whether your parents rejected it or your boyfriend rejected it or whatever it was, I know that pain of been there and I tried to get an abortion multiple times but would just sit there and cry and they knew that I was being forced into it either through I mean for me it was more of an implicit like emotional abusive forcing it's not like I was being like physically handcuffed there 
but it was definitely against my will and it was a really traumatic experience but what I think is really cool about it is I was so I was already 16 weeks when I found out I was pregnant so I was like really pregnant and I already like could feel in my heart that it was a girl like I already had connected with the soul energy and when I got pregnant again with G Zach hadn't talked to us in months and he had been in Brazil and he had just done I believe ayahuasca and he wrote me for the first time in years wrote me this like crazy long email he was like I just came out of an ayahuasca journey and I realized that I never dealt with this with you and I never apologized for everything I put you through and he was like I met our daughter when I was on my journey and she's coming back to you right now. And she knew that I couldn't handle being a dad, but I can definitely be her uncle. And this is the best thing ever. I'm so sorry. I never owned up for anything that I put you through. And it, it released me of so much anger and guilt and burden that I had secretly, I think carried with me for a long time. And I, I too felt like our daughter had come back to me this time. And that's my daughter, Sarai. She's seriously epically amazing and he just kept saying like I'm I'm so glad that you were so strong and you persevered and he was like I know that this daughter is coming back to you right now um so that was great it was very freeing and then from that point forward I kept every night when I'd go to sleep I'd have this dream that I would wake up and I had a dead daughter and I'd be like cradling this dead daughter and I was like oh god this is really like am I manifesting this or is this happening so at the time that you got the letter were you already pregnant yeah I was really pregnant so wow. he, he, he didn't even know he did know that I was pregnant mm. and he reached out to me to let me know that he felt really strongly in his ayahuasca trip that she was the same person that was coming to us wow. when I was 19. The same soul. Yeah, and that he got to talk to her like in whatever realm he was at when mm. he was on ayahuasca. And apologized, which was a big deal. When somebody like... Because I think, you know, in psychology they call it gaslighting. I think he went through such a so many years of trying to make me feel like there was something wrong with me for wanting to keep the baby to kind of psychologically manipulate me. Mm-hmm. When really, I mean, it's... That's very human emotion. Like if you have a child growing inside you, it's a human emotion to want to keep a babe, obviously. Totally. Like everything that somebody else would do from the outside. Like instincts. that's yeah, that's yeah. against all of your human instincts. Um so I got pregnant and I started having all these terrible fears about Sarai and I was having trouble deciphering am I fearful and manifesting this or is this a message to be careful of? Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get that line gets really blurry. Like, is this a fear that I'm manifesting or is this a sign that I have to watch out for? And it turns out it was a sign that I had to watch out for my um, I had a home birth in my house in a Walmart baby pool. And I will preface this with saying in Hawaii, home birth is more common than hospital birth. The joke in Hawaii, at least where I lived, was if you go to the hospital with a broken arm, you leave with a staph infection because oh, the hospitals are that dirty. So it was just kind of like a known thing. You have a home birth. So I had a home birth and I had a midwife that many of my friends had birthed with. She had been doing home births for 30 years and I knew something was wrong, I would say, halfway through my birth. And I kept, every time I would try to speak up, she would just say, you're just tired, you're just scared, whatever it was. Like, you're just, you're just, you're just. Mm -hmm. Instead of acknowledging that what I was saying maybe had some type of validity whatsoever. Um, It turns out my daughter was 
frank breach, which means that she was coming out butt first. So mm. she was like folded in half. And my midwife didn't notice it until it was way too late. Which anybody, if you ever like talk to a midwife, it's seriously inconceivable how she didn't notice. Um, I've asked her about it multiple occasions and she doesn't really have anything to say about it. Um, I've found like a string of other babies that have died since under her watch and have tried to press charges and it's just midwifery isn't regulated in Hawaii the way it is in other states. So it's kind of a lost cause, but, um, she doesn't have anything to say about it. And just from looking at her, she went from very actively engaged to just completely vacant. Like somebody had like ripped her soul out of her body and that she was pretty much just like standing there and staring for a few hours. So do you think that these dreams that you had were a message to, to, to prep for, I believe. Yeah. Mm. And to a degree when it happened, I'm, you know, when we talk about past life regression and everything that I'd been trained in before, we learn about imprinting and how some souls, when they incarnate into this planet, even though they might not have lived a life on this planet before, they get imprinted with other people's experiences before they come so that they have a point of reference. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like I was given reference to what that would feel like, which I'm actually really grateful for because when it actually happened, I didn't have the fear that I might have had I never thought that was in the realm of possibility. So, so I don't think you, I panicked. You birth, then did you did you have to have a? Obviously, you didn't have a C-section. So, so I gave. Baby... So I I pushed and pushed. My labor was thirty six hours. Thankfully, at the last minute, I went with my intuition. I invited my best friend Harmony to come to my birth. She was a doula for another midwife, like the competitive midwife, the other one. And luckily, my midwife let her come. And I could see something in her face. She was pacing, and I finally just looked at Harmony. I was like, Harmony, just say it. Just say it. I can see it in your eyes. There's something you want to say, and you're not saying it. And she was like, April, I think there's something wrong. I think that she was like, I think the baby's breech. And it was only her that actually brought it up. And the midwife was like, looked again and was like, oh my God, the baby's breech. But I could see Harmony was like pacing and knew something was wrong, but didn't want to overstep because she doesn't typically work with her. And at that point, meconium was coming out, which I don't know what you know about childbirth, but once there's meconium, then there's a whole other onslaught of issues that can go wrong with the baby aspirating and dying from having feces in their lungs. Mm-hmm. So then they knew it was like time crunch. They put me in a million different positions and the baby wasn't coming out. They had me like squatting on a birthing stool, like you name it. It was a nightmare. And I kept seeing my midwife like look at her watch and then look back up and look back and like look back at her watch. Like I knew she was timing something. And I think now looking back on it, she knew there was only a certain amount of time that my daughter could have a pinched cord without dying. Yeah. And at that point, I had birthed all of her except her head. So she was hanging by her neck. So the cord was like, she was basically hanging. The cord was pinched on her neck. And she was hanging by my cervix. And my midwife, now that I know enough about this, didn't guide her chin down the way she was supposed to. So she was hanging. And I mean, to everyone that's listening, I'm sorry. This is like an earmuff situation if you don't like graphic detail. But... My midwife literally looked at me and she was like, I'm so sorry. And then she took scissors that I would like trim my eyebrows with and cut me open so that the baby could come out. Mm. And when she came out, she was completely blue. I was already like slopped on the floor and they put her on my stomach. And I remember just looking down and being like, she's dead. Like, why are you putting her on my stomach? Like, I don't have a baby. And 
I remember a midwife just like patting her back. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm trying to stimulate her. I'm like, she needs oxygen. Like I'm no doctor here, but I don't think patting her on the back is going to bring her back to life. You crazy person. So thankfully my husband at the time, G was thinking clearly enough, grabbed her and started doing infant CPR. He had been like had lifeguard training, whatever. And he gave her infant CPR for about 20 minutes, even though everyone else was like, she's gone, let her go. Harmony started walking around the room, chanting in Hawaiian. And she looked right at me and was like, busy. This baby's not going to die. I've got you. She was like, I'm talking to spirit right now. This baby's not going to die. And I was like, okay. But I was really just laying there thinking like, how did all this happen? Like, why is this? What am I supposed to learn from this? And I remember just being really outside of my body, not being super emotional about it, just being like, all right, what am I going to learn from this situation? Were you still in a lot of pain? I don't remember any of the pain. All I remember is just being like, what am I going to learn from this situation? And my dog, because I remember I was at home, his face was like, I was on the floor and he was like breathing right up next to my neck. Like I could feel his cold nose right next to my neck. His name was Garuda. Um, which is the, the eagle. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. The eagle of the universe. Yes. So Garuda was amazing. And Garuda was just like breathing right next to my neck. And right, like after 20 minutes, even though he wasn't anywhere near G giving CPR, he just started barking and howling out of nowhere. And my daughter woke up with his howl. He literally started howling. He was a red nose healer in Pitbull. And he did like a, ooh. And my daughter woke up, turned pink. And then my midwife handed it back to me and was like, your baby is alive. And I was like, wait, 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 like, hold on. But in my head, the logical part was like, but she's going to have brain damage and this and this and this. And like, I don't want to connect with her. What if she dies? She was just dead for way too long. And I was having a, a really hard time accepting her. So then they tried to get her to nurse. She wouldn't really latch. And I kept watching her face. And every intuitive part of me kept looking at my midwife and being like, isn't she having a seizure? And she was like, no, that's totally normal. And I was like, but watch this. Three, two, seizure. It's a seizure. I can count it down. I'm like, it's happening on a pattern. And she was like, you're just really tired. Lo and behold, of course, it was a seizure. My midwife at that point was completely off her rocker. I ended up taking all of us to the hospital, even when... so whatever, this is an aside. But at that point I wouldn't let her sew me up because I didn't trust her at all. And she was like, this is not okay. I have to sew you. And I was like, I'll be fine. I will heal my own body. And she was like, it's not possible. And I'm like, watch it be possible. Mm. I can heal myself. Proud to say that I did heal my own lady bits. Thank the Lord. But I did take us all to the hospital that night. Um, my daughter had a fever, was clearly having seizures, and this midwife was not willing to like encourage us to go to the hospital, so I just did it. And they medevaced her, and my daughter does have cerebral palsy. She had 50% of her brain die when she was dead, or yeah, when she was dead. Um, but she now just started kindergarten, is going to a completely normal classroom, no special needs. She walks, she dances, she doesn't talk, but she does sign language, and she is funny and smart and loves yoga she's the most amazing yogi i've ever seen she's so talented at yoga and really gets the practice and whenever she's frustrated with any of her physical limitations she gets herself into baddha konasana and she ohms she can actually verbally ohm Mm. she's a really special spirit and i would say that that experience for me i had been through this you know life of being a past life regression therapist and really getting into that field and then feeling like i had a really good grasp of 
knowledge and you know medicine and making the right decisions and then all of a sudden I like my decision gave birth to a daughter that had special needs and my husband at the time was bipolar and he went into like a super deep spiraling depression and for me I I think at that point I questioned everything that I knew I questioned my femininity like I had to completely disconnect my brain from my vagina like first and second shocker were just not at all attached to anything else I had cut everything all the communication off started to question everything and had to go back to teaching yoga because that was what financially provided for my family but I would say every time I went I just felt like this robotic thing that I was doing there was no there was no heart left in it I didn't really care it was just to like get a paycheck and I came home one day and my mother-in-law Mayumi was like remember she's Japanese they don't do L's and R's there she's like Risha you need the medicine. You need the medicine right now. And I was like, what medicine? I'm afraid of drugs. And she was like, you know, you need the medicine. And she called in a Native American healer named Ryan. He was, I believe, Choctaw, either Choctaw or Cherokee. Now I'm drawing a blank, but I want to say my instinct was Choctaw. He flew in and we ha- I had to like be part of the whole process of like building the sweat lodge from scratch where he like told us what supplies we needed to get and we like built the sweat lodge, did the first night sweat lodge, second night peyote ceremony. And at that point, number one, I'm super claustrophobic. So even my boyfriend at the time was, or my husband was just concerned about my ability to even stay in the sweat lodge without totally panicking. But I did, and I ended up being in there. We did four sessions, and I was in there the whole time. And it was a pretty amazing experience for me, that and then the peyote ceremony, because the peyote ceremony, as soon as I drank the first round, I removed myself from the group, because they were doing like this spontaneous singing, spontaneous drumming, and at the time, I was really adverse to any kind of group anything. I really just wanted to be on my own. And when I went on my own, all I could say the whole night was that I was caught in the Shakti spiral. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, nobody else feels that. I can't, I'm caught in the Shakti spiral. I couldn't stop spiraling my body. And the whole night I would kind of wax and wane between like super energized, caught in the Shakti spiral, wanting to take as many notes as possible to like, holy crap, I'm panicking, go meditate in front of the Ganesh Tonka. So I'd like go meditate in front of my husband's Ganesh Tonka and try to breathe. But then all of a sudden I'd get really motivated and would be like, oh my God, we're moving the body totally wrong. It needs to be along the spiral and blah, blah, blah. And the next day, so that was a Friday. The next day I went to go teach. And when I went to go teach, I was teaching like a 26 posture hot class that, as you know, was like extremely structured. And I would say by pose three, I literally just said, F this. This was some bullshit. And just went for everything that was in my brain from the night before. And frankly, ever since, booty's just been growing and growing and growing (laughs) and evolving. And it's like this. And ten, where once I like let it trickle into my body and said yes, now it's just like a hell yes all the oh, time. Oh wow! So it's literally channeled through you. Channeled through me, and it's not to say that it hasn't channeled through other people, because I, you know, even just like listening to this book today, like all universal knowledge is, like anybody yes. can access it at any time. So you know, Kuchira is amazing with yo- yoga. Have and you met her? 
here's the thing. She's another person. She went off on me on Instagram and I honestly wanted to be like, bitch, if you look back years, like mine is so much older than yours. Like why you have to come up with ego is you just beyond ladies, me. Ladies out there, you here's guys need the thing. To I, I attack nobody. So for all I of you know. listening to me, like let it go. <laughs> Kuchira, you're awesome. Like I can I'm never move. you to. Kuchira, Watch I can this. never move my body like yours. But <laughs> for real though, booty yoga has existed before Instagram. We existed before Instagram, so I'm not copying you. We're all tapped into universal energy, so just honor that. Be cool that yours is so much different than mine. Like, I honor you. I really feel like I deserve the honor back. So instead of all the competition on Instagram, like, I don't go out there and attack anybody. Even people that have, like, blatantly, intentionally copied my method. Like, cool. Do you, boo. Like, I'm not (laughs) trying to compete with anybody. I just want everyone to have that healing, free experience. So... If that's what you want to do, go for it. But I mean, for sure, don't bring that competitive cattiness into social media. Like, why? You're better than that, girls. Come on. I commend you for saying that. You are. I know I know you are. And I have the utmost respect for every single person that has attacked me. And every time they've attacked me, I've always sat back and been like, geez, what a bummer. Like, because it doesn't make me look bad. It makes you look bad. So let's rectify that situation because it doesn't need to be that way. You ladies are awesome. Like, Couture, if I could ever move my body like yours, good lord, woman. You are stunning. Oh, you guys need to meet. She's epic. I just, you know, to for her to just assume that she's the only one that's ever moved her body that way is... That's <laughs> egocentric. That's like me assuming that, like, Los Angeles is the best place in the world. Like, everyone that lives everywhere thinks that where they're from is the best place in the world. But that's not true. <laughs> like, movement is movement, and thoughts are thoughts, and... We're all, if we're tapped into that universal energy, somebody at the very exact time that I'm channeling that thought can have it all the way across the universe. That doesn't mean that they're copying me. It just means that we're both tapped in. And to me, that should only be verification that we're on the good shit. Exactly. That is the verification. Like if somebody else is tapping into it too, that's exactly. We're doing this together. Yes, that's the high five time. That's not the time that you let your third chakra get the best of you and get all egotistical and competitive. Mm -hmm. Come on. That is not what this world is all about. I mean, it is what this world is all about, but that's not what we want this world to be all about. So let's transcend that, get past it, and start acting in accordance to what we want the world to be like, because that's not it. That's not it at all. in accordance to what we want the world to be. So, I mean, that whole, like, be the change, yes, and then some. Like, I really believe it's not just be the change, but expect that of other people. And I would say that that's something that, you know... We one of the things that I teach all the time is the only thing you can be 100% in control of is how you choose to respond. You can't change other people's behavior, right? Everyone has their own free will, but you can always change the way that you choose to respond. But at the same time, you can expect greatness of other people. And it's okay. You don't have to feel bad if they let you down, but you have to fucking set the bar high for other people. So for me to just be like, oh, well, women are just competitive. That's just how they are on social media. Is that going to help push the bar forward? No. But for me to call out some of these women with love and be like, hey, you attacked me. That's all fine and good. Can we please lovingly get past it and realize that we're all tapped into the same thing and we can all be trying to shift this forward together? with love and respect to me that is setting the bar higher because I don't believe that any woman if they were to like 
watch the playback after they've died and like look at the objective playback they wouldn't be like that was a good move they'd be like "Ooh, that was awkward (laughs) i wish i could redo that so don't worry i'm cool enough to let you redo it without a grudge definitely well that's a beautiful way to live life because we're we're only we're only in this body for a set amount of time and as long as we are in this existence within this body the most that we can do is help others to find their true enlightenment and find their true essence so that they can shine bright to be the most inspirational being that they can possibly be in their true power absolutely and i think one of the main things that people miss just as a general rule is that you chose this body this life these traumas these relationships for a reason so when people wake up and they're like oh why me shifting themselves into the victim role Mm -hmm. that is against everything you came here to achieve so if you were to just change your outlook right when you woke up in the morning from why me victim mode to i'm gonna own it how can i learn from each and every one of these traumas or adversities or relationships that i can keep propelling myself forward you're not here accidentally it's not a mistake You chose to be you. I chose to be me. Now live accordingly. Every single day you have the chance to move yourself forward, learn more, grow more, transform. People that have no adversity in their lives are the most boring people I've ever met. Like, (laughs) no thank you. The people whose parents were like helicopter parents that protected them from everything, boring ass human beings. People that have been through the trenches and the trauma and all of the hardships and come out of it better, those are the people that adversity builds skill. When you come out of that, your personality is just like wide and expansive and you have so much to be and so much to offer to people. That's why we're here. Life isn't supposed to be easy. If you wake up every day and you're like, oh, my life's so easy, you're probably also not learning and growing at all. So have fun with that. Boring. (laughs) Wow. You're you're on point Um, with just the culmination of this beautiful interview. I must ask you to leave our listeners with three golden nuggets of advice to help them on their paths. My three golden nuggets. Remember that your belief system dictates the horizon line with which you view possibilities and truly evaluate whether that belief system is yours or whether it was indoctrinated into your being. I think the moment when people start to question those belief systems, not just religious, but just belief systems in general, I'm smart, I'm capable, I'm weak, I'm a bad sister, I'm a bad daughter, whatever whatever that thought process, that belief might be, evaluate where that came from and whether that's truly what you would choose actively for yourself in the life where you are now. Because that belief sets the horizon line with which you no longer see possibilities. Just like you, when I said, Do you want to pick a blue or a red gumball? You picked one of the colors that I mentioned, not knowing that there were other color gumballs. When you have a belief, it sets that horizon line. You don't know what else is beyond it because you're not willing to push that out. So be willing to push out that boundary. Number two, you have to be as spiritual as you are grounded. I can't emphasize that enough. Getting into your upper chakras and experiencing some of those more esoteric universal principles is really important, but ground your body, care for your body, care about the things and honor the things that you chose to live in this human life. You didn't choose to live a human life so that you could meditate the F out of it, okay? So 
find that practice, but then also ground it back down because you chose to be human for a reason. This is an honor and don't reject that honor by meditating out of your body right now. That's number two. Number three, and I believe this wholeheartedly in everything that I do, and I think it's going to raise our vibration so much. Don't build followers, build leaders. When we look out at like all these people with their social media followings and founders of all these brands, like cool, I'm one of those people, but what I do every single day is I build leaders, not followers. People are like, how many followers do you have on your Instagram? I'm like, deuces, I don't care. Two middle (laughs) fingers. I live my effing life. I build leaders. That's what I do. I want to build my leaders to have their social media followings. I don't give a shit how many followers I have. Maybe it's like 28.8 thousand actually, but which is not that much considering it's all organic. But the most important thing is that creating followers doesn't help shift the world forward. So to me, do I want a bunch of people that are going to like bow at my feet and listen to everything I say? No, I want to raise people in my brand that actually are going to question, learn from me and then question me. I want to have an intellectual conversation with you so that you can make your own mind up set your own beliefs. I'm not telling you what to believe. I want you to believe what you want to believe. I'll help show you the way, but from there, it's all your responsibility. I don't want to create a tribe of followers. That's bullshit. That doesn't help the world. If every single one of my teachers can be better than me, hallelujah. That's what I want. I want every single one of my students to go far beyond anything I could ever have thought possible for myself. That's what I want. Wow. You are a gift straight up. I am so honored to be sitting across from you and to have had this conversation and to have solidified our friendship. Because forever and ever. Till death do we part. Yes, indeed. Straight up. Like, I, I am so grateful for you. Um, busy, it's been an absolute honor to dig deep and to live light and to share Absolutely. this path together. So... The Yoga Revealed listeners are greater for your knowledge, your wisdom, and your bliss, your beautiful bliss. Thank you for for this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This was amazing. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Wow. And immense gratitude for you for taking the time to truly be on this journey with us. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. You can learn more about Busy Gold and her booty yoga trainings worldwide at booty, that's B-U-T-I, yoga.com. For more information on booty yoga and to try a free online course, click get started right on the tab at bootyyoga.com. Namaste, yogis. Have a beautiful day. Keep it real. Live light, shine bright, follow your passion, and continue on your path. And now for that special treat, Yoga Revealers. Get ready for Busy's upcoming personal development conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Break free of emotional addictions to find a new you at the Break Weekend Workshop. The first 200 Yoga Revealers who use the discount code YOGAREVEALED at checkout to get 20% off of your entry to this transformational weekend with Busy Gold herself. Check out the Yoga Revealed site and click the Break Conference for more information. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.